Greetings, brothers and sisters. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will speak to us through this text. May the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How do you attempt to deal with struggles and pain that comes because you follow Jesus? Oftentimes, we remind each other, put your hope in God. Trust God. And we do this because we are hoping for a miracle from God that He will take the pain away. However, last week, we saw that some trials are necessary trials, which means sometimes the answer to our prayers and hope is a big no. Sometimes God does not remove us from suffering. So how then do Christians find hope? If there is no guarantee that God will fix everything for us when we ask for it. In our passage today, we will be looking at this. Now, as we have been looking at 1 Peter these past weeks, we begin to see where Peter is going with this letter. As the contents of this letter unfolds for us, we can see that Peter is seeking to answer a big question that is very relevant to the recipients of the letter. Jesus has already said, that the world will hate them because they hated him first. And true to form, that is what they saw as they followed Jesus faithfully. So we see this letter addressed to the dispersed people of God, who are living in the world as strangers, as refugees, as aliens, rejected because they follow Christ. As we see their situation, we can see that this message isn't just for them, but it is for you too. Because as you seek to follow Jesus faithfully, you too will be tested in the world and relate to the world as strangers, aliens, and refugees. And so this letter is relevant to you because it asks these questions. When suffering and despair comes and overwhelms you, what do you do? So where can you go to when the world seems to be crushing your hope and they seem like there's no respite for you? Peter gives an answer. Focus on your salvation. Now, if you think about it, that doesn't seem very comforting on the surface, isn't it? Can you imagine if you come to church and share about your suffering and the response is, yeah, sorry, your life is hard. But you know what? Thank God you have salvation to look forward to. Does this seem to be of little comfort sometimes? Now, here's the thing. That is the correct answer, but we don't often think of our salvation as the thing that makes all things right. The reason for this is not because there's anything hollow about our salvation, but our understanding of this salvation is lacking something sometimes. So let's see if our passage today helps us to dig deeper into this and see how this salvation is supposed to give us comfort in our suffering as aliens and sojourners in this world. With that, let's jump into the passage starting from verse 10. Now, we can see that verse 10 opens with concerning this salvation, which points us to the fact that this is a continuation of the earlier part of the passage which we saw last week. To refresh your memory, 
last week we saw that Peter talked about this salvation which comes to the elect exiles. It is a salvation that God has worked out in the past through Jesus Christ, then in the present he holds his people securely through faith, and finally this salvation assures them of that inheritance that will be received on the day that Jesus returns. Here in verse 10 then, Peter continues this idea by talking about this salvation and points us next to the prophets of the Old Testament who have prophesied about this from so long ago. Now, if we pay attention, we will realize that in verse 10, the term salvation is not used, in, uh, is not used and instead, he links the idea of salvation to the grace that was to be yours. Now, we know from the context that he is talking about salvation, but why does he use this term, the grace that was to be yours? In the context of the Old Testament, we want to see that there seems to be two parts to be right with God. The first way is being right with God through the keeping of the law. That is by finding salvation through perfect works. However, we know that nobody in the Old Testament could keep the law. All have sinned and fallen short of God. Therefore, under the salvation offered under the law, everyone stands condemned by God's standard of righteousness. In fact, the law only seeks to show us our hopelessness in finding salvation by relying on our own self. This is why there is a second way of being right with God. This salvation comes through relying on God's grace granted to those who trust in His promises and responding rightly in faith for the forgiveness of sins and righteousness. This promise that God makes takes different shapes throughout the Old Testament from the promise of the coming of the one who will crush the serpent's head uh, to the seed that will bring blessing to all nations as proclaimed to Abraham, to the promise of the Messiah who is the ultimate Davidic king. So for us on this side of history, we have a clearer picture of this salvation, which comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This then is that means of salvation that Peter is describing here as God's grace that is meant for you. And we come to verse 11 and we see this grace fleshed out more clearly for us. It talks about the prophecies relating to the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. So this is talking about prophecies such as those by Isaiah. Isaiah talks about this suffering servant who comes to die for his people, even though it is his own people who will reject and kill him. In the end, however, God will glorify him in response to his faithful suffering that came out of his obedience and love for God. Malachi talks about the beloved messenger of the covenant who will come to purify his people and bring glory to God. Daniel talks about the son of man who comes with the cloud and he is glorified as he receives all authority and power from God. The theme then is that the coming Messiah is to suffer first and then later to be glorified. But what is the point of Peter telling us this here? Surely the readers know by now that 
Christ is the true subject of the prophecies of the Old Testament, right? So what is the point? Well, in being reminded that Christ himself suffers, then enter into glory, we are drawn to see that parallel to the Christian life. The Christians too are to suffer and endure patiently, trusting in God, so that on the day when Christ returns, they too shall be glorified. By pointing them to this, he is indirectly showing that their suffering, as bad as it is, points them towards the coming of their glory. Have you seen your suffering in this light before? That when we suffer, can we see that here is that difficulty that will bring glory if you trust God and endure this in the right manner without compromising? So for the person who has to endure losing many opportunities at work, maybe because you're not willing to commit fraud or crimes for business gains, can you see that while you may suffer because your boss dislikes you, you will be glorified on that day of the Lord because you were faithful. That when Jesus returns and announces, well done, good and faithful servant, all the suffering will be worth it. If you have lost friends because you refuse to participate in things that do not honor God, uh, perhaps you choose not to go drinking and clubbing because you're worried that you will get drunk or you will lose control of your behavior. Then can you see that this momentary suffering then will lead to the end days when you will be exalted, made perfect and given eternal friendships that exalt God? So Peter reminds us, us here that the message of salvation itself reminds us of Christ's enduring suffering before his glory. And this helps the believer to see that in their context, they too should look to the example of Christ and endure in the hope of the future glorification. Besides that point, we can also see that since this salvation is one that comes by grace and not because people deserve it, salvation comes on the basis of God's love for the Christian. Having just talked about the certainty that God has worked out this salvation for them, Peter now, in this passage, helps them to remember that God is doing this out of his love towards them. Wouldn't this be a comfort then, that even as we hold on to the comfort from our salvation in response to our pain and suffering, we are not only looking forward to a future life, but know that right this moment, God loves you. And you know that because he sent his son to die for you. God does not save you by your merit. He saves you because he loves you. Now, as the recipient of this grace, Peter is telling his readers that, his, that this salvation isn't merely in the receiving of the inheritance, but it is an expression of God's love for the believers. They cannot have come to salvation based on their merits, but only because God loves them so much that he still enables them to come to him. God then shows his love as he guards them from stumbling and assures them that they will receive that salvation when Christ comes back. Wouldn't that help you to persevere despite whatever situation that you are in? Another point, that we get from verses 10 to 11, 
is that the prophets themselves did not know when the fulfillment of their prophecies were to come. We are told that the prophets searched and inquired carefully about this grace. And this shows us that even the prophets who brought such powerful hope to the people, they themselves did not know about this hope and longed to find out about it. Put yourself in the shoes of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Even as he prophesied the destruction of his people, he found hope that God also promised a redemption to come. How must have Jeremiah longed to see that promise come to fruition, even as the people of God back then fell into captivity and exile? Yet he could only hope and wait. Think of Malachi, who was made aware that the people are rejecting God and the glory of God has not returned to the people because they are not treating God right. Then, as Malachi prophesied, the day of the Lord that comes when the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and the faithful shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Imagine how he would have longed to see that in his own lifetime. How much must he have longed to see the glory of the Lord return to the temple? Yet he had to wait and did not see it in his lifetime. Then we come to the audience that Peter is writing to and to us. And we see that we have received the fullness of all the prophecies of the Old Testament in the person of Christ. How amazing is that? Would that not help us with our struggles? To persevere as we see how blessed we are that we not only have to hold on to the promises like the Old Testament people had to we know for sure how God works out his promises to us Christ then is a concrete and tangible expression of this salvation to the Old Testament people, it was a hint, a promise, a far hope. Yet for us, we have surety and assurance because we know that Jesus has come. Now imagine someone who comes to you when you are a small kid and promises that he will buy you a house as a gift on your 21st birthday. Then he disappears. Now that is a great promise, right? And it's something that you will be hoping and longing for. But there will always be doubts and concerns, wouldn't there? What if he changes his mind? What if the circumstances change? So you grow up in doubt, but then you have your 21st birthday, and this person suddenly appears. He brings you to a bank where you see the person make full payment for the promised house. And you see him signing everything over to your name. The bank then says, okay, all is in order. Now, think about it. At which time is the person most trustworthy? When he first met you or when he finally buys you the house? The answer is that, he has never changed, hasn't he? He gave his word, 
and he kept it. He was always trustworthy. But if you are in that situation, when will you be able to fully trust the person without doubts? Only when you see with your own eyes, isn't it? Before that, try as you might, there will always be doubts. So in the same way, being on this side of the cross, having seen the fulfillment of the prophecies, we can have so much greater assurance because we see it happening and know that it is for our benefit. We have no doubt because we know of Christ and what he did on the cross. Wouldn't that help us love God and trust his salvation even when we suffer? So, we come to verse 12 and we see that that is why verse 12 is important for us. Because we see in this verse that all the things that they have promised, the prophets, were for your benefit. How amazing is that? That the Old Testament promises ultimately apply to us. And also note how the Holy Spirit is described here in the text. In verse 11, he is the Spirit of Christ. Now, why give him an alternate title here? It would have been even more consistent to just say Holy Spirit all the way, right? Now, Peter does something throughout chapter 1 that you could have missed. Verse 2 begins with a Trinitarian declaration. Father, Son, and Spirit are involved in your salvation. Then we come to verse 3 and we see that the Father is called the Father of Jesus Christ. Here then, we see the Holy Spirit called the Spirit of Christ. What Peter is doing here is that he is taking the Trinitarian understanding of salvation and by emphasizing the role of Christ, he put a Christ-centeredness to how he wants us to see this salvation. And that's why in last week's passage, he ended it with the exhortation to love Christ. And the point of that is that we will be people who are hoping to see his glory. And this week, again, he points us to the work of the Spirit leading us to Christ. Salvation is Christ-centric. And so even as we suffer and hold our hope in this salvation, we're actually holding on to Christ by faith. We learned last week that God preserves his people by faith, growing them in it so that they will persevere to the end to receive the inheritance. So this is why even in our suffering, we should look to our salvation because that is how our faith grows. If we look to the hope of a miracle and hope that God will change our situation, well, sometimes he doesn't. Some sufferings are necessary for our growth. So if our hope in times of trouble is always in the deliverance from our trouble that comes, then one day when God does not give deliverance, what happens to our faith? But if our hope is in Jesus Christ and the salvation that God has given us through him, then that hope will never fail. Because we can be like Paul, saying to live is Christ, to die is King. So this is why we want to be Christ-centered and look to our salvation when we are in trouble. Not because we only want the enjoyment of living forever, but rather 
because this promise of salvation is Christ-centered. And that is the final goal as well, isn't it? To be with Christ. This is the promise that God has given us personally. God did not promise that all our problems will disappear. In fact, God says, if you follow Christ, you will have problems. So as you suffer in the world as sojourners and aliens, it is holding on to the fact that we are saved then that is able to point you to the relationship with Christ and remind you of how we will be physically united with him on that day when he returns. Shouldn't that take away some of the sting of our sorrows? Now, as we zoom out and we look at verses 10 to 12 as one big component, having understood the little bits, I wonder if you noticed this. The prophets were searching and inquiring. They predicted Christ, but they did not see for themselves. These were those on earth who knew most about God's plan. The angels in verse 12 long to look to the good news being fulfilled. Either they didn't know the details themselves like the prophets and they also wanted to see or alternatively maybe they knew what is coming, maybe they knew some of the details but they didn't know what they would look like and so they were too, they, they too were longing to see the fulfillment of this. The angels who were the agents of announcing this salvation to others, they themselves didn't have the full picture. So this shows us, right, that both heaven and earth are waiting and watching in awe as the Holy Spirit announces and proclaims the salvation that is to come. And then heaven and earth turns and looks as God reveals this salvation through Christ. And then finally, as God reveals that you who by faith are made into the elect exiles. You are the one who received that salvation with full assurance. Can you imagine the collective rejoicing on heaven and earth? This salvation is a big thing and understood correctly helps us to have hope against the worst that the world can throw on us. It is only us who are blinded by our circumstances that miss out on this truth. And we don't look to the hope of salvation as the balm that takes away the sting of our suffering. Now, don't get me wrong. The Old Testament believers were also saved by faith in God, but theirs was a harder situation because they do not know Christ yet. And they had to make a leap of faith to believe. It's like trusting that person who comes to promise you that he will buy you a house. It's easier to trust once you have seen him sign the documents. Right? But even so, his promise back then was still true. And it is not in vain if you have placed your full trust in God back then. It is not by chance then that the hymn writers uh, wrote this hymn. When peace like a river attended my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, 
Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, will you be able to look at the state of your soul and rejoice that it is well with your soul, even when sorrows overwhelm you? Though Satan shall buffet, through trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. Are you able to look at what Christ has done for you and find assurance then that regardless of whatever happens, it is well with your soul? So as we come to the end of our passage, let us see that this is what this passage then points us to. That we have become recipients to something that spans all of history, that has been prophesied, that people have been longing to have, that angels in heaven wants to see. And the only reason we have been so blessed is because God loves us and he saves us by grace. It is this then that helps us to carry on. It is this then that should be the fountain of hope when things look dark to us. So will you continue to look to your salvation and that hope and rely on this to weather you through the difficult times? This is what Peter is calling us to do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that through Christ, you have offered us salvation, that you have washed us clean, that it is well with my soul. So Father, help us then to come back to this truth when we are struggling, to remember that the prophets, the angels, all long to see this, and we have been given this so graciously by God. So let us appreciate the enormity of what you have done, Lord, and respond rightly by delighting in our salvation all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.